0: to tea and theology this is richard ward and i'm here with my wife danielle hello and our good friend david Arizaga. what's up today we have a special guest brian Morse. hi in this episode we'll be discussing the lord's ordinances for the church before we start our discussion david's going to tell us about the type of tea we're drinking today
1: yeah so we have another tea from our tea plug the british emporium it's the uh, scottish breakfast tea this week and as we take some sips, go ahead and tell us a little bit about Brian Morris.
2: Yeah, I'm a husband to Vanessa. We've been married for seven and a half years. Um, be eight in September. Dad to Haddon, who's four. Emma is coming up on a year in July. So, yeah, busy with kids and exciting things. Uh, also, I am the adult growth coordinator at our church, Fellowship Baptist Church which is just a fancy way of saying I oversee our Sunday school for adults. It's cool, but it sounds way more fancy than it is.
1: Right on. Cool. Well, we're excited to have you and to talk about the topic today. I'm excited to talk.
0: In this episode, we're going to discuss ordinances for the church. What exactly are the ordinances?
2: So for us, for Protestants, we would have two ordinances. We would have the Lord's Supper and baptism. And those are coming directly and specifically from things that um, the Lord Jesus ordained for us in his earthly ministry and told us to uh, observe. So we've got, you know, the last supper, um, do this in remembrance of me. You've got the Great Commission, which I think we're going to talk about a little bit as well, uh, with go therefore baptizing. Yeah,
1: and the conversation's pretty old.
2: People have been talking
1: about what exactly should be considered as the rights of God's people, of Jesus's people. And there's even been a lot of discussion about what exactly they mean. And what do they do? And why should I do it? We would say that the unique thing about the ordinances is is that it takes our, our eyes and our hearts and our affections and our experience and it lifts it up to see what the ordinance is about, and that's Jesus. So when we gather for the Lord's Supper, we're taking a look to Jesus. And when we baptize, we see the expression of, and we could talk about this more, but the expression of, Our relation to Jesus, right? It's all about Jesus.
0: So I was actually baptized three times. First, as a baby in the Catholic Church. The second time was after I believed in Jesus in the church. The third time I was baptized in the Jordan River on a Holy Land tour. So you got them all covered. (laughs) (laughs) So David, which one
1: counts? That's real, Richard, because imagine how many people grew up have, having been baptized as a baby and really
2: having nothing to do with Jesus. My wife was talking to somebody a few years ago, and this person's not a believer or anything, but they mentioned, my wife was talking to this person about faith, and they said, yeah, well, when I have kids, I'd like to get them baptized just in case, just to have my bases covered. And like that's not how it works. Being baptism isn't your ticket into heaven. To spin that back around to the question is it's, you know, just the mere matter of baptism in terms of like what counts. In our context, we would say the baptism is done through the authority of the church, the authority of the local church that you belong to. And so, even kind of a weird way I've seen this recently is on like a local Facebook group, I saw people asking, like, hey, who will baptize my kid? I'm like, You're not part and to me, I'm like, you're not part of a church that would, you know. You're not part of a church, you just want to baptize, so what's the point? Like, what does this baptism mean? It's just water, right? Baptism doesn't, like, it's not magic. It doesn't accomplish something when there's nothing else there.
1: As important as something like the commandment of Jesus to baptize and be baptized, there's something to say about how gentle and welcoming and precious that he sees our obedience in identifying with him in that when somebody in the local church does say they have an experience like this, well, I've been baptized three times because maybe in their head, I just want to be baptized as many times as I can be because I love Jesus, you
2: know? Or like, I
1: didn't love Jesus before, and now I want to really identify with him and I'm baptized again.
2: And I think it's become more and more common for people to get, like, re-baptized. And I I don't mean that in the context of, like, people who were baptized as a baby who then come to reject um, infant baptism, baptized as a believer. That, that's not what I'm referring to. There are people who've been baptized as believers and just that one didn't stick so they get baptized again. And they're like, well, then I sinned again. I fell back so they get baptized again. Mm-hmm. That I would say we shouldn't do that. Um, and that, I don't think there's any actual defense in scripture for being baptized multiple times. I mean, if, you're, if you've come to believe and come to the perspective that your child baptism was not the appropriate way that should be baptized, practiced by scripture, you should be baptized again. And so kind of tying that all back into my initial comment, like, and even to Richard's instance of his third baptism, being baptized in the Jordan, I would actually advocate not to do that. I mean, yeah, it's cool. You get to get baptized where John was baptizing where Jesus was baptized, and that's neat. But if that's where you're baptized on a mission trip, when you've been part of a congregation that has been discipling you and feeding into you, and sharing the gospel with you. And you've been saved at that congregation. And then you go over to the other side of the world and go, you know what? I need to get baptized. I'm going to do it here. You rob the church back home of the blessing of seeing your sanctification and of seeing where you've come. Because the people who should be able to celebrate with you in the baptism are those that have ministered to you.
3: When I think about my baptism and like Brian was saying, if there are instances of people being re-baptized because they feel like the strength of their faith was so weak at the point that they were baptized that they want to be baptized again. I think of my marriage and the first year of my marriage, how I did love you, Richard, but compared to like my love for you now, of course, it was like I barely knew you. And so I think like as a Christian also, like we're gonna see that. Uh, our love for Jesus grows, and, um, and that doesn't mean that we need to get baptized again, but uh, it just reminds us of the goodness of God and how our baptism was a, a sign and a symbol that He um, took us from darkness to light, and He's continuing to transform us. And yeah, just, just as a reminder and not necessarily as something that we need to go back to and be rebaptized.
2: Another reason for why it's really important, I think, to baptize in the context of your local church is because of the the service that it does to parents and their children. We had someone who was baptized at our church recently. Um, we've had quite a few people, actually, praise God, that have been baptized in the last year, and it's really exciting to just you know walk out there and watch our whole church witness it. But then, as I'm you know sitting with my child, and like, oh, we're baptizing. Why are we baptizing them? And then you know me as a parent, I get this wonderful opportunity to. Preach the gospel to my child, which is exciting because we're able to say, Yeah, we're celebrating with these people their faith in Christ. We're celebrating them, what they believe, and the wonderful opportunity it gives for us as parents to be able to, you know, share with our kid what's going on and why this is. And like, what a wonderful opportunity that is to be able to rejoice with these people and declare to our, you know, declare to the next generation what's going on. Because, I mean, baptism is a church event
1: let me give my anecdote of baptism i became a christian about six years ago how what happened was i was actually witnessing my dad's baptism with his church and so they're in their pool you know they're having a big old party for him and i hadn't been baptized yet i'd been a believer for maybe like a few months to half a year I hadn't been baptized yet and so you know he's baptized and the pastor opens up the invitation like okay if anybody hasn't been baptized and you'd want to be baptized. Let's do it right now. And I was thinking, I was sitting there, I was like, I haven't been baptized yet. <laughs> you know, I'm a, I love Jesus and I'm a believer. And so I was like, okay, let's, let's go. And so I got in the pool, you know, and got baptized. And everybody's happened. I don't know many of these people. And so I get out and my first immediate thought was like, man, I wish like my church saw that. You know, all, I'm just thinking all the pictures, all the faces in my head, all the names went through my head. And, you know, I sent out a text. I'm like, man, I got baptized. I wish wish you guys were there, but I've been baptized. My family missed such a big thing. And then, but God's people are awesome, you know? So they were stoked because it's more than just the action. It's
0: about Jesus, you know? I think that brings up an important reason why we should be baptized in a church setting. Because, as you mentioned, David, you had a church family who knew you, and they knew that you believed the gospel. So they could affirm yes david he trusts in jesus and he should be baptized just imagine someone though who let's say they got baptized in a church setting like like you did where people didn't well you had your parents there but people didn't really know you let's just say you believed a false gospel there you are in a place where people don't really know you but they baptize you not knowing that you don't have faith in the true gospel so i think that's why it's important to be baptized in your own church because the people at your own church can affirm that you believe the true gospel.
3: There's a lot of good things that was said about baptism. Now let's talk about the Lord's Supper. What is the significance of the church partaking the Lord's Supper together?
1: Yeah, I think it would be helpful really quick quick to read kind of like an outline Mm -hmm. of what the Lord's Supper is that Paul gives us. uh, Of course, it's in the Gospels, too, but Paul outlines it real quick in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Starting at verse 23, he says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup. After supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The question is about why do we do this together? One thing that's important to point out is that Paul, and really Jesus, he was talking to a group of people, his disciples, when he gave them the the ordinance to remember him, right? So he tells them to take the bread and to take the cup. And I think the the importance of that when we do it in the local church, part of it is that it reminds, reminds us is that Jesus didn't just die for me. His body wasn't just broken for me, and his blood wasn't just spilled out for me. Of course, I'm part of the group that he, he, he died for, but he died for me
2: and the brothers and the sisters. The other side of this is, you know, why can't we just take the Lord's Supper at home? And this was, I mean, especially considering 2020 on, 2020, um, in a time of, you know, live streaming and dealing with all of that stuff. We had this instance in which some people were, through the guidance of their pastors or elders, were instructed one way or the other. Some said, yeah, you know what, you can take it home. We'll all do it at the same time here and just do it virtually. And then there was the other instance in which um, the church we were at and then, you know, the church that I was on staff at at the time in 2020, we just waited. We, were, we just said, you know what, we're not going to take the Lord's Supper until we can all take it together. But how sweet was it the first Sunday, the fir- whatever Sunday it was, was taken, the first Sunday when the church gathered again, it was time for the Lord's Supper. And there was this, Whether well, it was six weeks or whatever. I don't, as far as I know, most churches, the first week that it was like, all right, we're meeting again, the first time it came around, it was like, we're going to do the Lord's Supper. So for most churches, I think it was like 12 weeks or something. Maybe it wasn't that long to which we were, all churches were like, all right, you know what? We're going to value the gathering over anything else. We're going to value this more than we value our health. And I think that's important. But in that meant observing the Lord's Supper. And there was a period of time in which we couldn't take it. But then we all came together and taking the Lord's Supper again for that first time after however long we couldn't was incredible. Because it was like, this is something we missed. This is something we cannot get online. And even if you did take it online virtually, it's completely different. So the church that Vanessa and I were at when we first got married, they did the Lord's Supper weekly. It was part of our service every, every single week. It's remarkable what that did for our marriage because every week we were forced to look at each other before we took the Lord's Supper and go, I'm sorry for the stupid thing I said when we were driving here. I'm sorry for whatever I did last night. I'm sorry for how I've treated you this week. I, For me, I would have to say I failed to model Christ in our marriage the way that I should have. And we would have to confess sin before we could take of this. And we knew that. All of that saying taking the Lord's Supper together, and this goes to Paul, where in the community, it's in Corinthians, um, in the community of the saints, making sure there's no sin among the believers. And if you're taking it by yourself, you're at home, streaming church, you don't have grape juice, you take apple juice, and you take an Oreo instead, that doesn't give you the opportunity to go to your brother and say, I've sinned against you, and I need to make that right before I can take of this cup, before I can take of this body. Because if we're taking of the Lord's Supper well, we're remembering what it means, the body of Christ broken for us, the blood of Christ shed for us, which is because of our sin. So we can't allow this sin to go unrepentant in our own congregation. We can't allow sin to endure against our brother, even if it's incredibly awkward to say, sorry, I gossiped about you last Thursday at our fellowship group that you weren't at. Even if it's incredibly hard to say, I've been holding resentment against you for years. But we have to take the Lord's Supper seriously. And if we're doing that together, then as we're looking across the congregation at whoever, and remember things aren't right in my, re- in my relationship between me and this person and their brother or sister in Christ, we, we miss that when we do it at home. The scriptures kind of give us a really strong indication that we need to take the Lord's Supper together, but take of it well and not abuse it and not allow it to be frivolous. One thing that I think always catches
1: my attention when we're talking about the ordinances, again, is God's wisdom. Look at what Jesus gave his disciples to remember him. It's something that so simple. It's something that Pastor Greg always brings up too when we talk about it. Is that he didn't give us some like hard to obtain elements or some something that only the priests could get. But he gave us or he told us to take bread and wine, which is something most people have, you know, and they could remember and they have access to. And going back to baptism and the Lord's Supper again, seeing how, how gentle and lowly Jesus is, is that he'd give us something so simple. And so again, the emphasis and the focus is beyond. The ordinance points beyond itself and where it points is to Jesus.
2: To give a, a quick overview of you know Calvin's view, and this is, I'm just going to read a quote from Christopher Morgan's Christian Theology. Um, so he describes Calvin's view as the... Um, real presence, and he says that the elements do not change. Christ's body is still in heaven, whereas, I mean, Lutherans and Catholics would say otherwise. Um, But with Calvin's view, and this is the quote, the Holy Spirit brings the benefits of the risen Christ from his place at the Father's right hand to believing participants in heaven. If we step back from what Calvin says, we can take the point that something spiritual is happening. Something spiritually significant is happening in the Lord's Supper. And that's probably weaker than what Calvin would have actually said. That's where I kind of sit in all this. I think Zwingli had a lot of things right, but I think there still is something spiritually significant. Um, And maybe we can push into, you know, maybe a little bit more the means of grace type thing there. But even just what I mentioned earlier, if that forces greater unity among the saints, if it fixes issues in my marriage, if it forces me to repent, you know, if I've sinned against David and before I can take it to the supper, I have to say, dude, I'm, I'm sorry, we need to make this right. If, you know, that's the issue with my kids, if it's with my wife, if it's with, you know, even our pastor, you know, that is spiritually meaningful. Um, and maybe it's just even to the degree of like how we address the spiritual disciplines. Um, cause this would be a church discipline. Um, And I think even if we're going to say that it doesn't become, you know, if it doesn't transform into the body and blood of Christ, you know, it's not Jesus in disguise, it's bread, it's juice. And even if, you know, we're going to reject that entirely, it doesn't mean it's not meaningful. It still has a significance to it. There is a church in our area that does something really interesting, where I don't know if they still do, but at one point they served actual grapes rather than grape juice. I haven't fully developed whether I think this was necessarily wrong or right or whatever but it's interesting and the reason they do this is because in the eating of the grape you get this picture and they described it really well there's this picture of the grape being crushed in your mouth and you get this picture of Jesus's body being crushed. The problem is you kind of then blend what's being said in the elements because it's Jesus' body broken for us, Jesus' blood shed for us so it's kind of blending the solid and liquid aspect there but it's an interesting picture nonetheless I think that we, when we're taking the Lord's Supper we must be reminded of what Jesus paid of what it cost, Jesus
1: Thank you for listening to this episode of TN Theology We hope you'll join us again Until next time